Good morning, everyone. Welcome back to our study of Has American Christianity Failed by Brian Wolfmuller. Today we're going to do a very quick review of um, the idea of uh, repentance. And we'll move on from there to uh, some other topics that are coming up, including conversion, although we won't spend a lot of time with conversion. And then um, we will go into this idea of passive righteousness. And if we're able to get through that, we'll go into absolution, the office of the keys. And of course, immediately following that is a section on conscience. So we'll see how far we can get, but we're going to try to pick up pace a little. Um, again, though, you're the one that dictates that <laughs> to a large degree. Um, if you have questions or, or interest, I'm happy to entertain uh, that. Let's open with an invocation prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. Okay, we left off um, right around, well, it would be fine to just be at 100, page 100, and um, we left off at 102, but just by way of very quick review, um, let's talk, let's recap repentance, and again, what we see in the Bible is we just see the word repentance, metanoia, um, and we see it used in different contexts in different ways, okay? Um, the broadest way we see it used is that repentance is simply short for conversion. And of course, we kind of make the stunning claim as Lutherans, and we take this right from the text of Scripture, as Pastor Wolfmuller has demonstrated for us, that conversion is an ongoing and lifelong process. We are constantly being converted and trying to remain in a state of conversion, not not reversion, <laughs> faith, not unbelief. And that's a daily battle and struggle. And of course, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. So it's God that sustains us. But at this very broadest sense, repentance is conversion. And here too, um, th and this was kind of the way that Wolfmuller was taking it, um, in, this, in, in that category of justification, we think, we think of conversion as having two parts, contrition and um, or repentance is having two parts, contrition and faith, or contrition and forgiveness. Okay, Because what is faith grasping hold of? Forgiveness. Faith in and of itself is pretty worthless. You know, um, if, I, if I were to climb up to the top of the building and have faith that I could fly and jump off, I would not fly, I would get injured, and my faith would have been in vain. So... Faith is only as good as what it clings to. Um, and so my, my belief, that my faith in the fact that I could fly is not worth anything. Um, but now my faith in Jesus, my faith in his death for me, forgiveness of my sins, his resurrection, this is faith in something that is powerful and true and effective. All right, so... Um, repentance has these two parts, contrition and faith, faith clinging to the forgiveness of sins in Christ Jesus. All right, and then if we kind of even narrow it down further, we can think of like a verse where Jesus says, um, 
proclaim repentance and the forgiveness of my sins uh, in my name to all nations. Well, there, even still, you can see how the word repentance is being used in a different way. Now, repentance is um, distinct from forgiveness of sins. And, uh, and you could see a partition drawn there. There's two different concepts. There's repentance and the forgiveness of sins. Well, I thought we just said repentance was contrition and faith in the forgiveness of sins. You see? So repentance used in that way is the broadest possible. That's conversion, the widest possible sense. Slightly narrower. Repentance distinguished from, distinct from, the forgiveness of sins. Okay? Now when we talk about repentance at this level, we're really just talking about contrition. And we're talking about that which the law works in us. Um, and the law could take many forms, even civil law in this respect, even our consciences. Um, but it's that, it's that law, it's that sense of we are guilty. And um, that is the work of the law then, that act of repentance. And, and Wolf Mueller's point here too is that that's passive. Again, it's something that's done to us. Nobody wakes up and says, you know, I really want to have a guilty conscience. Let me get on the treadmill and get that thing fired up. Now, you can't fire up a guilty conscience. It simply comes upon you. It's something you suffer, endure, experience. It's passive. Okay, And that's just an example. All right, and then we can be even a little narrower with our definition of repentance. We could talk about, um, can a Christian actively repent? Can they cooperate in this work of God where God is revealing to us our sin? And the answer there biblically is yes. Yes, we can cooperate in that kind of active repentance. But this is a, I mean, look at how narrow this definition of repentance is. It's specific only to the Christian, the Christian examining himself, the Christian crucifying his sinful nature, the Christian making confession in order to receive absolution. Um, these are the, these are maybe some concrete examples of this kind of active uh, repentance. All right, so important for us to have in mind these categories and frames, and I wanted to just simply review that for you today. Now, as we move on to the, well, I should say, are there any uh, questions or comments, anything loitering around, any cobwebs that I can help dust off um, in regard to, to repentance? Then? All right, so let's jump into conversion and um, take a look here. Of course, conversion, we've been talking about repentance in the widest sense being um, pretty much identical to conversion in most cases. Here on page 102, Wolfmuller writes, There was an early dispute in the Lutheran Church around the question of conversion. How is a sinner converted to God? Martin Luther taught that conversion occurs through the Word of God and the Holy Spirit, specifically the Holy Spirit working through the Word. Philip Melanchthon was Martin Luther's colleague and the second greatest teacher of the Lutheran Reformation. Uh, up for debate. <laughs> After Luther died, Melanchthon revisited this question of conversion. The result was bad. Melanchthon added a third thing to the list, man's will. Man's will was now understood as the instrument of conversion and not the object of it. Okay, so in other words, man's will is part of the causal chain um, rather than the object of it. What is meant by the object of it? Okay, it's the passive thing that is change. 
switched. You can think of a light switch. I always do. This is always my go-to analogy for my own sake. Um, the object of, of conversion is the will. The object of uh, turning off and on the lights is the switch. Okay? The switch isn't part of the causal chain as if it has something to add. It's a passive recipient of whatever is doing the causing, namely your finger. You're flipping the switch off and on. You, it is the object of conversion. Conversion from off to on or on to off. Um, but what's doing the doing? You and your finger. Yeah. Okay, and so the same thing is true for the will. The will is like that light switch. It's the thing being turned off or on, being turned toward, being by nature off and opposed to God and then being flipped on and um, no longer opposed to God, but receiving his gifts. So this is done, what is the finger causing this? The word of God and his Holy Spirit in and through that word. Make sense? Okay, so you, you make a distinction there between the actors and that which is acted upon, the hand pushing the switch and the switch, um, or the word and spirit of God and the will. Now, what happens if you slide the switch over and make it an active thing? Well, you've done something that doesn't make sense. What happens if you push the will over and make it an active thing? Again, you've done something that doesn't make sense, but even more pernicious in theology, you've asserted something about the fallen human being, namely that he has a will that's capable of turning toward God. Okay, All of this might sound really technical. How does this frequently manifest itself in, in our thinking and in common thought? A question or perception like this. What about all the pagans out there who are desperately seeking after God to know him, but just can't? That's not actually happening, is it? <laughs> it's the biggest fantasy we tell ourselves. There are no noble pagans out there seeking and pursuing God and willing God, but God is just up there being like, I'm sorry, no, no soup for you. You know, the salvation Nazi in the sky. No salvation for you. Uh, no, this is, okay, so again, this is part of the distorted theology of our fallen man. Our fallen man assumes that he has a, you know, he is by nature at least partially good. He may be damaged, but he's, he's intact enough that he can seek God, pursue God, will God, choose God. And of course, the thunderbolt of the scriptures is, nope, no one seeks after God, no, not one. That which is of the flesh is hostile to that which is of the spirit. Okay, Very much binary and very much antagonistic against each other. Okay, um, The key word here is, is that word, we've, I think we've seen it before in this class, concupiscence. Okay, concupiscence, the root word being where we get our word for cupid, desire. And concupiscence means that if you're, an, if you're an unbeliever, your desire is naturally set in opposition to those things of God. God says, do X, you say, I'm going to do not X. God says, don't do Y, and you say, today I'd like to do Y. Sounds fun. Um, so this is how we are by nature, and we have to be converted by God. All right, well, that um, probably serves to be a little bit of a review. And to contextualize us here into, um, again, this conversation, so to speak, between Luther and Melanchthon, after Luther's death, uh, modifying this concept of conversion. 
Picking back up with Wolfmuller, the third paragraph under Conversion, God's Word, he writes, as the theological conversation progressed through John Calvin, then the radical reformers, and into the revivalists of America, the word of God lost its place in conversion. Okay, American Christianity now understands conversion as the result of the Holy Spirit working together with man's will. And of course, this would be classically defined. I mean, this is what's so ironic. We, before, So we're going through this now, and it's the 21st century. We went through this in the 16th century, and we went through this back in the 4th and 5th century. This is a recurring issue. Um, the Pelagian controversy, there's a Pelagius over and against Augustine. Augustine started out as a free will theologian. And then he met Pelagius, because Pelagius is like, yeah, let's just take this to its logical conclusion. It's me plus God equals salvation. <laughs> and that was enough to kind of trigger Augustine into seeing that like, hey, this, this can't be the case that there's two causes of salvation, me and God, and it sent Augustine back into the scriptures where Augustine found that, no, it's God who does the converting. Augustine repents. I mean, incredible thing that this amazing, brilliant mind who had already made formal public position says, humbles himself and says, you know, I was wrong. Um, and, and I, and then he, he begins to teach, um, in this way that God is the one who converts. And Pelagianism is uh, named as a heresy. Okay. You have Pelagianism. You have, um, semi-Pelagianism and you have synergism. It's all different types, subcategories of this idea that man plus God equals salvation. All right? Um, and so, so that's, uh, you know, if, if this all kind of sounds familiar, though, the West in specifically, the Western church in specific has dealt with this question for centuries and centuries. All right, here's a neat little table. There you can see that Luther, um, sees what, what are the causes of man's conversion, word and spirit. Okay. And, it, and why, why is the spirit added there? Because the word doesn't just work like magic. You know, otherwise, anytime you, you told someone about Jesus, they would instantaneously believe. There's a, there's a mystery there. Um, the Holy Spirit converts when and where he pleases. And the mystery is, how does that work over and against someone's ability to reject this good news of God and, and fall in and, and continue rather in their unbelief? Um, this question ultimately evolves to why are some saved and not others? Why are some converted and not others? And the answer is the Bible doesn't give us an answer. Uh, the blame is always laid with man who rejects God, not with God who desires that all men would be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. That's about as far as we can go with that question. Any, any further, you're going to end up denying parts of Scripture. Now, it's almost insatiable to us to answer questions that Scripture hasn't answered because we think, well, we can figure this out. And so then reason pursues an answer to that question, and reason will land you in one of two places. With the Calvinists and double predestination, 
or with the Arminians and free will decision theology. Those are the two places where reason takes you. What's the problem with those positions? Neither one of them is right. They both, con in their own unique way, contradict Scripture. Right. So we Lutherans will say, no, we're not gonna, we're not gonna seek to answer that question, trying to answer that question. We're gonna end up denying part of Scripture. Alright, so for double predestination, where is Scripture denied? Well, double predestination says before the, the, anything was made, God sat back there and said, okay, these people are in and these people are out. You picture an angel coming up and saying, is there anything they can do about that? Nope. I'm just making these people. Why are you making these people to go straight to help? Mm, for my glory. <laughs> um, okay, so what is uh, in this idea? Now, now what's, what's logically being, um, you know, what's the, what's the logical solution here? Well, that if God's responsible for electing, he's necessarily responsible for damning. That's the logic, Leon. But it goes, it goes further than what the scriptures say. And then where does that land you? Well, when God says that he wills all to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth, you have to start doing your theological gymnastics. When you have a statement like, Jesus Christ is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, you have to start doing your theological gymnastics. Okay, You have to start making all and world mean just the elect. All the gospel applying just to the elect. And then here's the real, to here's the real toxicity, like, from an end-user standpoint. <laughs> okay, If the gospel is only for the elect, then wouldn't it be pretty important for me to know if I'm elect? How do I know if I'm elect? Well, look to your good works and see. I, that, does that not strike anyone else as a rather sophisticated way to end up right back up in Roman Catholicism? Trusting in your works, thus you have faith, thus you're elect. And what a, what a shaky kind of ground anyway, because you look at your good works and you go, yeah, exactly how much, how much of my good works are pure good works? They aren't tainted by any self-interest or pride or arrogance or anything like this. So anyway, um, what gets the tension that kind of gets solved for us rationally by going that direction of double predestination just simply amplifies and increases when we realize that we're contradicting scripture and taking away hope and, um, really kind of destroying and mangling the gospel. All right, well, let's do the flip side of the equation. How's the other way answered? Arminianism. Um, but let's do that in just a second. I saw a hand. Did you want to get a word in? One of the things I used to tell my kids all the time as they were growing up and things happened, I said, God doesn't make junk. If you follow predestination, then God makes junk. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> he yeah, knows that's a good point. You're, you're not, you know, you, God makes junk, and that's not yeah. true. It's a good point. It's a good point, and that that has been the charge that's been levied from time to time. Um, there was a a, a a heresy, the earliest heresy that God does make junk is Manichaeanism. Um, Manny taught that uh, the prophet Manny taught that um, yeah, to to basic to be a human being. To have flesh is to be evil, which makes God the maker of junk. <laughs> yeah, in this case, all, all men are junk. In the case of the more refined question that we're on, um, the uh, the those who are reprobate or not elect are junk. And so it only says God. It only adds to Manny's position that God makes junk out of everyone. Just know God makes some junk and others precious. Yeah. 
All right. So what's the what's the other side then? You know, again, the oh, please, please, yeah. So when um, <clears throat> Lutherans use the verses like. Okay, somebody says, when were you saved? And we can say also at my baptism, mm. or I was elect before, you know. Sure. Okay, so you guys, Lutherans, we use the word elect. Mm. Absolutely. And um, so I don't know how um, it's different than friends of mine who would be Reformed, and they use the word elect. Um, I've always understood them to mean it the same way. And then another question I, I, my friends also believe that, um, it is God's word and the spirit that converts. Mm -hmm. No will mm -hmm. involved. Right. Yeah. That's the spirit. Well, then I don't understand when the spirit comes to convert everybody since he is, you know, if he's, so the, a person that isn't saved hears God's word mm -hmm. and the spirit comes to save him, but it, he isn't saved. I don't understand. The, wasn't the power of the Spirit, if God wanted him saved. You see, that's the thing. It rationally and, doesn't make sense. Right. You stumble on that. Okay. Yeah. yeah so, and then, well, then one other thing. I oh, don't see. Okay. I'm not sure I'll be able to get well, okay. answer all of this. Okay. I'll, I'll, I'll let you finish then. I don't want to go No, further. no. Go ahead. Well, I'll, I'll try to wrap it up. I don't see um, it being works that, that a Reformed person looks to. Mm. I, I see it being they profess Christ as their Lord and Savior, and they're so thankful for being saved. Mm -hmm. And they don't look at their works and get boastful. And the word goes out to every. We, ha we have no idea. We all want to preach the gospel to our loved ones and to our neighbors. We have no idea who's saved and who isn't saved. A Lutheran doesn't know who's saved and who isn't saved. Um, you know what I'm saying? But we share the love of God, and we let the, God, the Holy God and the Holy Spirit do the work. Mm -hmm. So... Yeah, I know and, there are differences. And to, but. yeah, to your, I mean, to your last point, fair enough. So, um, when I am, uh, you know, when you're teaching a class on theology, you can't presume to know what every individual out there might think that's either according to or not according to the formal theology they say they hold. I have to analyze things based on the teachers and the public teachings of the confession. And so, so yeah, what I, what I'm speaking generally has to do with what's taught um, in in those churches um, but again could particular uh, believers cling to something otherwise and, and do something otherwise of, of course they could um, but this by the way is why you know if you ask a Lutheran um, can Roman Catholics be saved okay well the answer is of course because there are Roman Catholics out there who say well I don't know about all this earning my way into heaven stuff I just know that Jesus is my Savior, and when I go to heaven, he's going to be the one that meets me there, and he's good and gracious and forgiving. Okay, so there's, so there's Christians in every, in every denomination, but that doesn't mean that we can't critique a given denomination's teaching. Okay, so then just kind of working backwards, if I can, um, in regard to, you know, well, if the Holy Spirit wants them to be saved, God desires all to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth, and he does this through the word, and the word hits a person, why then aren't they saved? And, and this is, we're butting up against that question that scripture simply does not answer. What we need then to know that this is the scriptural position, though, is we need some examples in scripture where this happens. We need to know what it is that God says, okay? 
Well, one place we could turn to is in Jesus' words toward Jerusalem. Do you remember what he says? Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how I long to gather you together as a hen gathers her chicks. Okay? There's the heart of Jesus desiring the people of Jerusalem to be saved. And then, then he follows it up. But the Holy Spirit didn't actually want it. No, that's not what he says. But Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how I long to gather you together as a, as a hen gathers her eggs. But alas, I guess you're reprobate from the foundation of the world. Um, no. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how I long to gather you together as a hen gathers her chicks. But you would not have it. Okay, now how does that work? Jesus doesn't tell us how that works. It's precisely in trying to figure out how that works that we go beyond our pay grade. <laughs> and we start doing things, we start doing a theology by rationalization as opposed to a true theology by the word. If we do a true theology by the word, we simply have to say, I don't know. I don't understand. I know that Jesus says he longs to gather them together. I know that Jesus is doing everything necessary for them to come to the faith and believe. But I see that the cause of their rejection isn't in Jesus. It isn't in the Father. It isn't in the Spirit. But it's in them. Let's see. Okay, so what is, what is the part then with double predestination that the Bible agrees with? Well, the Bible disagrees as, as we've kind of been, been, um, and I think that this will get to your original point question. Um, the Bible disagrees with this idea that, that God's out there just kind of arbitrarily damning some and saving others, and you're stuck in these two categories. These are your eternal tax brackets, and there's no way for you to get out. Um, that, that kind of theology actually, um, okay, here's the telltale way that, that the doctrine of election is being distorted. When the doctrine of election is being taught to Christians, is it being done so to comfort and console them? That your salvation is so certain that God has taken it into his own hands and has declared you to be his before the foundation of the world. That's the comforting doctrine of election. And, and I would challenge anyone, go look in the scriptures for where the doctrine of election is being taught to Christians and it's being taught in this comforting way. In other words, gospel or election is gospel for the church. Now, what's the telltale sign that's being abused? When it's taken out of the context of being comforting to God's people and it's set up as a kind of theological system. What's the, what's the next way that you can tell that this is set up as a theological system? Okay, You've got election as the frame, and then you go, well, where is Jesus in this frame? Ah, he's just there for the elect. You see how Jesus becomes kind of a cog in the machinery of double predestination. God's sending some to hell. Would he send his son to die for those who are going to hell? Of course not. So you can see then how the, in double predestination, sometimes this is um, the acronym TULIP. Um, we're talking here, you can see how um, unconditional election, the U in TULIP and the L, limited atonement, atonement just for the elect, fit together in this system of theology. But of course you've got to ask yourself, is this system of theology, is this way of framing election, particularly double predestination, is found anywhere in the scriptures? It's a Lutheran contention that it's not. It's a Lutheran contention that the frame for theology is Jesus. <laughs> and Jesus' death, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the whole world, and that God wants all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. And then when we are saved and are believing in him, but are fearful because of our 
our own sins and because of the sad shape of the world, um, then God comes and says, so certain is your salvation that I have elected you before the foundation of the world. And that's great comfort, you see. So election, the doctrine of election, biblically speaking, functions within the frame of Christ and the salvation of all people and it's gospel for believers. All right, so then what, what then does, um, what then does double predestination get right? Well, precisely as you pointed out, those who hold the double predestination hold in regard to the cause of people's salvation as being wholly and totally the work of God. Monergism. Not synergism, which is two working together, um, but monergism. So, er ergos is kind of the root there for work. And is it two people working together, synergism, or one person doing the doing? monergism. And, and the answer biblically is monergism. It's God doing the doing, His Holy Spirit through His Word. So this is where, like, just to, I mean, again, I understand that not all Calvinists are double predestinationists, and maybe not all double predestinationists are Calvinists, okay, but but for just work with me here. Um, generally speaking, this is where we would say um, Calvinists are right when it comes down to um, how it is that God converts and who gets credit for conversion. Um, and and in this respect, we you know we so cherish this point because it solves all kinds of other uh, even worse theological errors that we have great affinity for those um, of this tradition, and we just say, look, the double predestination goes too far. That's a logical conclusion, not a theological conclusion. It comes from your mind, not from the scriptures. Okay, so I think we can we can treat this kind of especially on the personal level, we can treat this gently. On the more formal theological level, of course. You know, it's our vocation as pastors and theologians to make judgments and make distinctions, you know, that, this kind of thing. All right, well, what then, what then about the other side of the coin? How's the other way to kind of rationally try to answer this question that the scriptures doesn't answer? So why some and not others? How does this work? Did you see how the double predestination side says, well, it's all hidden in God. Either God chooses or doesn't choose. Okay. What's, what's going to be the opposite? It's all up to, Man, yeah. I mean, this isn't this isn't terribly difficult algebra here. There's only two parties, God and man, and so one wants to solve the the mystery by saying it's all in God, and the other wants to solve the mystery by saying it's all in man. So man chooses or man rejects, and this is Arminianism, named after uh, Jacob Arminius, and this is really kind of the he's the theological father of decision theology, and. I mean, I think that decision theology actually leads you further astray and in, in a worse kind of way. What does decision theology get right, though? Decision theology gets this part right. Remember Jesus looking over Jerusalem? Uh, how I longed to gather you two together as a hen gathers her chicks, but you would not have it. What synergism gets right is the idea that man can reject the gospel of God. Even if it's already a done and established fact, Jesus Christ is the Lamb of God who has been slain, who has taken away the sins of the world. They're all gone. How could you, I mean, in a sense, you can't even accept that. I kind of use this analogy. It's, it's sort of like if you, if you woke up and you are on an airplane and the stewardess came up and, 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 you know, was walking down the aisle. He said, well, where am I? You are on an airplane. Well, I don't believe that. I don't accept that. <laughs> well, it's true whether you believe it or accept it. Your acceptance or belief in it is completely irrelevant. Right? 
then you can say, "I reject it," and you can make a sprint for the exit door. <laughs> Indeed, you can reject it, and alas, you're no longer in the airplane. <laughs> okay, so this just gives us a, a a way to see how one how how one's acceptance. Or one's belief, as such, isn't a causal factor whatsoever, but one's rejection may be a causal factor when you throw yourself out of the plane. You can't do anything about the fact that Christ has already died to forgive all your sins, to take away the sins of the world. You can't do anything about that fact, except reject it and throw yourself outside of that and say, "No, thank you. I don't want this righteousness of God gifted to me in Christ Jesus." I want to stand before God on my own merits and worthiness. Is that going to go well for you? It wouldn't go well for any of us. St. Paul said it wouldn't go well for him. If it's not going to go well for him, I can guarantee it's not going to go well for any of us. Okay, But those are the options. I mean, that's it. This Again, Christianity, it can be very complex as we try to like fight off false teachings and false ways of thinking. But at its root, it's very, very simple. And there's only these... These two different ways to stand before God, um, you know, in in the hour of your death, at the great judgment seat. There's only two ways to stand before God: in the righteousness that He graciously and freely provides in Christ Jesus, or in your own righteousness, which is no righteousness at all. So, all right. So what? That's what the uh, Arminians get right is this idea that you can reject the gospel and negate it for you, and that the cause of damnation isn't in God, but rather in you. How I long to gather you, God says, but you would not have it. You are the cause of damnation, not God. Okay, so that's the right part. We'll get into the wrong part in just a minute. Please. Yeah, Pastor, uh, just to throw something else into the mix that Mm -hmm. I appreciate... Uh, and that's baptism, and the fact that the parents have the ability and the and the command mm-hmm. to baptize their children, uh, which now, granted, they can reject mm-hmm. At, mm-hmm. at a later date. Sure, but to me, that's a wonderful gift, and I appreciate my parents uh, for for their faith mm-hmm. uh, to have me baptized, and I think. Uh, uh, that fits into the formula uh, uh, for us. Absolutely. Thank you for that. It demonstrates that that God is an inclusive God. Christ came into the world to save the world. God is saying, come in, come in, come in. Well, not me. I'm unworthy. Come in. (laughs) There's no such thing as unworthy. There's no such thing as sin that goes beyond my grace, my forgiveness. So, um, the way that God does this is manifold, but in the life of families, he says, yes, I want your children, baptize them. Yes, I want your family and your friends, baptize them. Bring them in, make them my children. Let them live their life from before they can even remember anything else all the way to the day they die. Let them live their life as my children, in my grace, in my forgiveness, with my blessings and benefits. Yeah, God is inclusive and it manifests itself in that in that desire to have even the youngest possible children baptized. This is where it's it's very fitting when we see Jesus say, let the little children come to me and do not hinder them. Remember the disciples. You can just about hear like the theological rationale the disciples would have. Salvation isn't for them. 
They don't know what they're doing. They can't have faith. You know, whatever, whatever objection the disciples might have come up with to keep the little children away from Jesus. And Jesus says, let the little children come to me. And then he turns and rebukes the disciples and says, unless you become as them, you will by no means into the kingdom of heaven. What precisely is happening to these little children? They're not making a decision to run to Jesus. They're being carried to Jesus in their mother's arms, the text says. So I love it. Jesus takes these adults standing there and says, hey, unless you become as they, carried in their mother's arms to me, totally passive, ready to open to receive my blessings in pure humility, as pure grace, you're not going to enter the kingdom. That's beautiful, beautiful teaching. Okay, so um, then this idea of, uh, of what the question being, um, why some and not others, and as we look to the Arminian side, it's all up to man, and man can accept and man can reject, man can believe, man cannot believe. The bottom half is true. The, the part that man can reject, you would not have it, is absolutely true, and that's the cause of damnation. But the idea that a man's decision, his free will decision or choice or active willpower or putting his own faith in Jesus, that this is a cause of salvation. It's like That's like the light switch claiming to have credit. Um, Hey, I'm the one. I'm. I have a part here. I'm the one that did something. Yeah, your part was passive. <laughs> it was moved by the finger, and that's what we need to tell our wills and tell other people: is the will is passive. It's moved by the finger of God. You believe? Praise God! It's God that did this for you, not you. All right. And this table makes this clear. Now, what we've been articulating in terms of the cause of salvation is is that of Luther in the table, word and spirit. And this were agreed with Calvinists, no, to be sure, um, and with Orthodox all over the world of all times and places. Now, you can see trouble start to brew with Melanchthon. Um, to tell you the truth, there's some technical argument about this um, with Melanchthon, um, he sometimes gets painted as a as as you know a bad guy in this particular question. Um, there's some debate about that as to whether he's really understanding it in these crass terms. But for the sake of simplicity, let's just go with he's a bad guy here. I'm sure um, if he's not, he'll forgive us. Um, but yeah, so you add in you add in these three causes then: word, spirit, and will. And you can see what's happened then. The light switch has become part of the active equation. It's claiming a credit that it can't possibly claim. And then what happens, um, and, and I would argue, uh, well, I think that um, the point was made, that I think actually in fairness, this is probably the predominant way in American Christianity that people conceive of salvation, at least if you give them the words and help them with it. It's Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of Christ. They, they would give credit to the word, they would give credit to the spirit, but they would also give credit to their will. All right, and then in, and then in some extreme cases, although, although it's, I mean, there are large, there's large groups of people, I don't mean to diminish this, but there are large groups of people um, in American Christianity who think it's just spirit and will, and they discount the word of God as such. They don't see that as a necessary ingredient. Um, this would tend to be sort of like um, the theological forefathers of this would be like uh, Zwingli, for example. Um, not Calvin, but Zwingli um, from, from the time of Luther, the 16th century. And Zwingli and, and some of these um, Luther tongue-in-cheek called them heavenly prophets because they claimed that they had direct revelation from heaven and um, the word to them wasn't very important. Um, in fact, the direct revelation from heaven trumped the word and interpreted the word into whatever they said it meant. <laughs> kind of like we went from a pope to everyone a pope. Yeah. 
Um, so this, um, this idea carries forward, you can think kind of Pentecostalism sometimes, um, and then charismatic type movements. I think you can see this in mainstream Christianity, you know, um, is it, uh, when people are, 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 you know, in kind of like, think of, think of like a big box church where the smoke machines are going and the laser light shows going and, um, where are people raising their hands, sway, you know, praising God, exhibiting what they would count it as like signs of the Holy Spirit? Um, is it during the sermon? So when the pastor's reading the Bible? <laughs> no! No, it's not! Because you can see in that piety, it's not the word that's, that's bringing the Holy Spirit to them and thus manifesting in this bodily response. But rather, what is it? It's the music. It's the beating drums, and it's the laser light show, and it's the smokes, and it's the feeling. And um, occasionally, if you listen carefully to what the band leader is saying, he'll even you know, tip his hand that they're making God present or come be present. And, and so how is the Holy Spirit being received? Not by the word, but either through no means or through means of the music and experience, you see. So that would be this last category that Wolf Mueller identifies with spirit and will being the two causal um, agents in uh, in conversion. Okay, so where do we see monergism that God converts and man rejects? Where do we see this taught in scriptures? Well, I've already given one example where man is the causal agent of rejection. And then what Wolfmuller's going to do here is give us a whole bunch of texts that teach... Um, from the scriptures where it's taught that God is the one who converts and he alone is the cause of our salvation, right? Now, he, um, so he quotes Ephesians uh, 2.10 here. Um, you can see that in parentheses um, in this last paragraph on the bottom of 102. All right, so just go with me to the other page and I'm going to just kind of cite the scriptures that are cited here. Acts 16.14. Okay. where it says that the Lord, we're talking about Lydia, the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. Otherwise, her heart was closed. So it's the Lord doing the doing. Next paragraph, it's Matthew eleven twenty seven. No one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. How can you choose something that you don't even know is there? So again, it's the, it's the Son who reveals the Father to us. It's the Son doing the doing. Um, same paragraph, Matthew 11, or 13, 11. To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven. But to them it has not been given. Again, just pay attention to the causal agency there. And then 1 John 5, 20, quoted, um, the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. So again, he's given us understanding. And we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God in eternal life. All right, and I, you know, I don't want to belabor the point. So I'm just going to simply point out to you how many scriptures there are. And in fact, this is just scratching the surface. If you have a book of Concord, of the Formula of Concord, Article 2, uh, Paragraph 90, you can have like three big, huge pages just filled of scriptural references. Like this is not a minor teaching of the scriptures. 
Here quoted in Wolfmuller's 2 Corinthians 4.6, Romans 1.16, Romans 10.17, Philippians 2.13. Um, and then he quotes the small catechism to this effect. Okay, so I think we've talked quite a bit about conversion. And we've hit the major themes we want to hit. Um, yes, please. Just real quick. I do agree and understand what you're saying about the passivity of conversion. Mm -hmm. And I think the confusion comes in when you think about your will. It's just that once you're converted and you've made the decision yourself that, yes, you are going to go to Bible study and you're going to go to church. And then it seems as if the entire world lines up. Your car isn't working or everybody Always. in the world schedules something on Sunday or, you know, you think of a hundred things that you probably would rather want to do, and that's your will. You have to decide mm -hmm. to commit mm -hmm. to, I don't know if that's a demonic attack on you, or but yeah, your will does play a role in continuing to choose to stay away from alternatives, I guess. Okay, that's okay, yeah. Now, now the, way, the way we think about that, again, based on these biblical teachings, okay, so that's... That's the point I don't want you to lose sight of. It's based on these biblical foundations, and we're trying to articulate how it is that the scriptures themselves speak in categories that we can understand over and against these categories that people use that get confused and end up, end up to where we go back to the scriptures and we go, well, that doesn't seem to be saying what the scriptures are saying anymore. <laughs> okay. So we start with the scriptural text, and we, we come up with these categories, and um, this is where it's really helpful. So in the category of conversion, what, what changes us from unbelief to faith, and then what keeps us in that saving faith, this is where we are entirely monergistic. It's God who converts us, who turns the light switch on, and it's God who keeps that light switch on, despite the devil, the world, and our sinful nature. So God gets all glory in creating faith and in sustaining faith. Period. The end. Okay, so we can, again, God... To all glory be to God. Um, now, what about the second category? Not conversion or justification, but what about the secondary category connected to it of sanctification? The daily walking out, the, the working out of our salvation, the salvation that God has given us. How do we work this out ourselves under the assaults of the devil? And here's what you're honing in on. That is indeed an active pursuit, a synergistic pursuit. God sustaining and gifting us and empowering us through his spirit, covering over our sins with the gospel of Christ Jesus. But our wills most certainly have an active part. Um, think of the scriptures that talk about Paul saying, he doesn't say, let God crucify the sinful man that is within you, but he says, you crucify the sinful man that is within you. Okay, there's all this active language in the scriptures. And we all know even from experience that, yeah, as I tease the families used, Getting to church on Sunday morning is exactly right. As I tease the families in the church, don't ask me how I know this, if you have a really peaceful morning in your household and you want to ruin it, say, hey, let's have a family devotion. <laughs> and just open up your Bible and watch what happens. The milk is spilled, tempers are flaring, nobody wants to talk about what the devotion is about. <laughs> it's instant chaos. It's inst okay, so we, we recognize then that it's, it's a it's sometimes great, great effort it takes to try to live out the salvation that God has freely given us and, and to put to death the sinful flesh in us and rise up as new men on a daily basis. And, um, I was so comforted. I, I was just, just this morning, in fact, on my way into church, I was listening to a sermon. 
And I was reminded of the text that says, even a righteous man sins seven times a day. And I just thought to myself, oh, that's so, that's so comforting. Because you, you know, you sometimes think to yourself that on a daily basis, surely no one is experiencing what I'm experiencing. No one is failing the way I am failing. Um, and then you're comforted by the scriptures that come and say, you know, even a righteous man, which I would never claim to be, even he is going to sin manifestly seven times a day. And of course, what is it saying? Like lots, plenty. Um, and so we who are not righteous, men, who are lesser, we can um, take great comfort in this. Even the best, even the super Christians, even the best of the best, even the, the truly objectively sanctified relative to all of us, still fall grievously seven times a day. Um, that great comfort there. So yeah, this is the battle and the strife and the warfare. Um, what happens when you collapse everything into justification and you lose the strife and the warfare and everything's passive? Well, then you get a really distorted kind of Christianity. Just, just sit on the, you know, it's like, it's like, I use the example of, of this. It's like God's calling down because he wants us to do stuff. It's like, it's like me telling my son, hey, son, I need you to come help me take out the trash. Dad, I'm going to wait until you convert me. Son, son, I'm converting you right now. Here's my word. Take out the trash. Dad, the problem is in my flesh, I just don't want to. I want to sit here and watch a cartoon. So until you, uh, until you repent me, <laughs> I'm just going to sit here. I'll show you repent you. <laughs> you know? um, so, so God doesn't force us into these things. And so what happens when you kind of collapse this all into passivity and all into, hey, there's no active part of the Christian life whatsoever. It's really distorted and it gets to be like, well, I, what do I bring to this equation? Sin. What does God bring to this equation? Forgiveness. So then anyone who would compel me to not sin or do my duty is what now? A legalist. You're just trying to get me to self-justify and climb this ladder and try to impress God. And, and so what have you done? You've woven a whole system that's completely mangled. Um, all right. And then what do you do? What do you do on the other hand if everything becomes sanctification? And that's really the Christian life. Wolf Mueller's going to get to this where in, where everything becomes sanctification. Then guess what the gospel becomes? This is one of the telltale signs. The gospel is your joyful self-improvement. And every sermon you hear is, is, this is the good news. God's given you these 10 steps to be even better than you are now. This is the good news. Here's the path to where all your problems can go away, or this particular problem can be solved. And is that the gospel? No, the gospel is the free forgiveness of sins in Christ Jesus, and our standing before him by grace through faith alone, and the glorious freedom that that affords us to pursue his law and be gracious to other people. Okay, so these are the two errors. These are two great distortions that take place in the faith. When we make everything about our effort, then the gospel just becomes like, hey, let me give you this little steroid injection so you can do better. Uh, that's terrible. And that's American Christianity by and large. And then there's kind of an overreaction against that that's like, hey, if you, if you all teach that everything's active, I'm going to teach that everything's passive. Because <laughs> you know, the opposite of an error is just the opposite error, always. And then you get this really distortive effect if I'm going to wait for God to repent me. And it doesn't matter if I go to church and bah humbug and, you know, this kind of piety, quote unquote. Yeah. Yeah. So right between those two, complete passivity in terms of our salvation, complete activity in terms of our living that out. Yeah. Please. The one thing I remember from confirmation 
above all. <coughs> is this quote here, I believe that my Lord Jesus Christ, you know. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Calls and sanctifies. And he says, um, come to me, but the Holy Spirit has called me by the gospel. Mm, mm. Enlighten me with his gift, sanctifies, and keeps me mm -hmm. in the true faith. So I've always looked at it like, yeah, I sin maybe a hundred times a day. I know that I'm saved, mm -hmm. but the Holy mm -hmm. Spirit is convicting me of that. If if I didn't care, if I wasn't saved, yeah. I don't think I'd even give anything a second thought. Mm -hmm. So I think it's an active role that the Holy Spirit has in your life as he keeps you in the faith. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, Alice was referring to the quotation from the small catechism on the bottom of page 103. And there's really interesting grammar here that every Lutheran pastor likes to point out. So I guess I'll be cliche and do the same. All right. If you look at that quotation, I believe that I cannot by my own reason or strength believe. Okay, by my own reason or strength is modifying, I believe that I cannot. All right, so if you just kind of take out the modifier for a minute, then the sentiment becomes even clearer. I believe that I cannot believe in Jesus Christ, my Lord. That is, it's outside of my powers. And then you can see the, not through my own reason, not through my own strength or willpower, right? Um, not through anything. I can't come to faith in Jesus. I can't believe in him. Um, but... The Holy Spirit has, and here's the means he, use, he uses, calls me by the gospel, enlightens me with his gifts. Now, this, this is sacramental language in, in Lutheran speak. So this is baptism, the Lord's absolution, the Lord's supper. Sanctified and kept me in the true faith. So what are we confessing here? That the causal agent of the one who brings us to faith and keeps us in faith is the Holy Spirit through these means, the word and the sacraments. Thank you for pointing that out, Alice. It's a, it's a really wonderful and profound teaching in the small catechism. We could have saved a lot of time. We could have just read that. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Um, we've got to... Oh, yes, please. Sorry, sorry. No problem. So what I've distilled more clearly and maybe erroneously today is one of the biggest distinctions between Lutheranism and all the other religions... And it's been a long time since I was in world religions, so I probably I'd love to hear if there's another one that's close to Lutheranism. Is the ability to embrace the unknown? Mm, yeah. In that everything, but everything else has looked to answer that question, the unknown through mm -hmm. their own reason, through their own ways, you know, mm -hmm. and then incorporated it into their religion, but. In Lutheranism, of which plenty of Lutherans aren't free for this either, you can just say, we don't know. Yeah. The Bible doesn't speak of that. So right. Therefore, we should stop and say, we don't, I don't know. Right. Definitively, the Bible does not answer Is this question. Is there any other religion that will say, I don't know? Well, the, you know, I would, I, as much as I would love to just kind of like um, placard Lutheranism in gold letters that... You know, the fact of the matter is we're following a long tradition in the West of church fathers who were very willing to set limits. And so in this sense, the Lutheran position, you know, capital L Lutheran position is really the small c Catholic position, according to the whole. Because, again, it, it, you know, it's earlier than Augustine, but Augustine... Um, 
Augustine is to theology in the West what like Plato is to philosophy. Um, you know, you just everything thereafter is an interaction with him. And Augustine is one of these that very carefully articulates mysteries, that is, in, in, in here in this technical and narrow sense, um, things which God has not revealed to us in his scriptures, places where then to be faithful we must be silent and refuse to give an answer. And that one of those is um, the question of why are some saved and not others? And, and the biggest, I see the world clearly divided on that anyways. You know, it seems that we more, we always want to know. We mm-hmm. want to know. We want to have this causal straight line pathway, yeah. whereas Lutheran leaves it really wide open. Yeah, you, I mean, if you really are, if you're bored some afternoon, I think we all do this multiple times when we're in seminary because... Part of seminary experience is just they make you bored into thinking of, uh, that's why it's in Fort Wayne, you know. <laughs> What's in Fort Wayne? <laughs> okay, but so if you're, if you're bored and you want to think through this, um, so why are some saved and not others? You can kind of just start to work through this problem and you're going to see how basically every thought you have contradicts some part of the scriptures. <laughs> that's it. It's completely unfruitful ground to think in because you go, you go, okay, well, then it makes God biased because it means that even though he says he wants all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth, he actually gives the secret sauce, the causal agent, the thing that does the thing secretly and to some. And so well, what, what have you just said? This might sound all nice and pious, but you just said that God is lying when he says he desires all men to be saved and when in fact he actually doesn't and he gives the secret magic only to some. Okay, so then you get uncomfortable with that and you say, okay, well, it's not in God, it must be man. So then you, then you get this in, as pious and as trimmed down and as palatable as you possibly can. You go, well, the difference between me who believes and Joan who doesn't believe is, okay, I'm not going to take credit for my faith because I believe that I'm converted by God, but Jones isn't converted by God. Gosh, am I saying I'm a little better than Jones? Yeah, I guess I am. How do I get away? Okay, how do I minimize this as much as possible? And you do this thought and you go, okay, well, well, Jones rejected. I just didn't not reject, right? You try to pa- you try to make this passive, right? And so, so the difference between me and Jones is, well, he rejected, and I don't want to say I believed or I made a decision. I want to say that I just didn't reject. So then you go, well, there is a categorical difference between me and Jones. Jones resisted harder than me. Is that right? And you look back on your life and you think that's that's a horrific and abominable idea that I would beat on my chest and say, I resisted God less than this other individual? That that doesn't make any sense, nor do I believe that for a second. And you might even think of like concrete unbelievers in your life. You might think about your siblings or your children or your parents. And you're like, really, was my sin so much lighter than theirs that I... And then you go, wait a minute, that I was able to see and believe where they weren't and they were blinded and rejected. And then you go, wait a minute, the way I've just discussed that is meritorious. My sins were lighter. And so you start to see, you start to go like, okay, I'm going to look for every possible avenue out of this. And you start to see that every possible answer you give contradicts the scriptures. And that's when you return to where you began, but you know it for the first time. And you say, indeed, God has not answered this question. So what then is my duty as a Christian, as a Christian person or as a Christian theologian? Not to answer that question, but to nonetheless articulate the truth of God's word where it does speak. Fault for rejecting Jesus lies with uh, 
human being. You would not have it. Credit for going into salvation and going into heaven belongs with God. Yeah, He's the one that creates faith through his word. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ, not by willpower, by hearing. So we, that's, what, that's our task then as Lutherans. We want to be humble enough to know where the scriptures don't um, give us the answer. And we want to be humble enough to simply say what the scriptures say. And if other Christians kind of mock or say how that's irrational or doesn't make sense, big deal. Lots of the Christian faith doesn't make sense. Isn't that exactly what the Christian faith tells us? That all of this is foolishness to fallen human reason, but is the power of salvation of those who believe. All right, my friends, that's it for today. Next week, passive uh, passive righteousness. We get to hear, uh, if you want to read ahead, please do. You'll get to read, because I'm not going to touch this in depth and detail, but you get Luther's conversion. Luther's conversion experience, passive righteousness, um, into absolution and into the conscience. The Lord be with you.